I do want to grant that sometimes it's, it's hard to do what you should do. Hard to grant what is actually good for you in your disciplines and routines. It's hard to do sometimes what you know is good. Uh, and that's because not good things have an appeal. And I, I think about going to a doctor. You know, if you went to a doctor and you're told, well, you need to cut back on this. Or you have to stop this. No, no cutting back, just a ceasing altogether. Or you need to, okay, you haven't been doing this, you need to start doing this. Maybe you're already doing something that's good, and he says, well, you've you got to do more of that. You've got to multiply it. What this physician is doing, he's receiving you into his care, and he's trying to help you think of the bigger picture, trying to help you think of life further down the road. He's got some experience. He has seen some other patients. He has things he wants you to think about that you might not be factoring in. In fact, he's thinking, Lord willing, about what would be best overall for your physical well-being. Sometimes it's hard to do what's good for you. You and I know this to be true, and that's why the book of Proverbs can be so helpful. It helps us realize, I need to grow in wisdom. That's going to involve receiving things that are good for me. Might not feel that way. It's going to be receiving things that sound like rebuke. Reproof. The word reproof is a word that means correction. Instruction by correction. And there's just no other way around this. We could put it this way. We need to grow in wisdom. And the route is through reproof. There's no other way. You know, if imagine, imagine you're setting out to travel. And you're going to go on a drive that's going to take you through a series of tolls. And you think, well, is there a route that goes around tolls? We have this conversation in our car all the time. Is there a, is there a route that's going to take us around this? And sometimes the answer is no. It's like, that's the route i got to go. And what I want you to know is in the case of reproof or rebuke, there's just no way around this. Is there a way to gain wisdom and acquire insight and understanding for life around reproof? There is not. Growth, is wisdom. Growth in wisdom is through the route of reproof. There is no alternative route. There's just folly. There's just the path of folly. But through the path of wisdom, there is reproof and correction along the way. And it will not feel good. We will not perhaps even want it at the time. Even if we knew it would not feel good. If we thought it felt great, we might not want it still. And yet it's the big picture. Proverbs pressing upon our minds. Think about where things are going. And the destination that this path is going to lead. And we realize that Going through reproof has a life-giving effect. There's no way around it. The route of reproof is the way of wisdom. And in verses 30 through, 31, uh, through 33, these four verses are about receiving something. You know, in verse 30, it's about uh, news. Good news that's refreshing and enlightening. In verse 31, it's about life-giving reproof specifically, which could be maybe a subset of larger news. In verse 32, ignoring versus listening to instruction. And in verse 33, instruction and wisdom. And these, are, these are verses that are connected together, this subunit, with the idea of receiving something into your heart. In fact, the mention of the heart in verse 30, that the light of the eyes rejoices the heart, um, this continues to be something like other parts of the body, the bones in verse 30, the ear in verse 31, this is a concern about taking in through eyes and ears 
what will be good for you. You know, the dentist has been trying to get me to floss as long as I've had teeth. And they tell me every time this is going to be what is best. But doing what you know is good for you is hard. <laughs> Especially if it's not your habit. Some of you might be flossers tonight. God bless you. But <laughs> your pastor is not one of them. Uh, but in verse 30, the idea of receiving something begins in this general report of news that is rejoicing or refreshing to the mind, the heart. Verse 30, the effect of encouraging news sounds like this. The light of the eyes rejoices the heart, and the good news refreshes the bones. This is about how encouraging words affect you. And we realize, as I've said before, quoting Dane Ortland and others, people are not going around over-encouraged. There's much to be discouraging Uh, and discouraged about in our lives, hardships and difficulties, and we need to have our spirits lifted. The Lord is so faithful to do that when we gather together on the Lord's Day and on Wednesday evenings to bring renewal and strength in a hard life because life is hard. The Lord is good. Blessings abound everywhere. That does not That does not change the fact, that does not negate the fact of the hardness of struggle and difficulty. And so when we see here that the heart is rejoicing and the good news is refreshing bones, there's something about that where we say, yes, that's exactly what we want. Like, can we just have that on our calendar every day? That our hearts would be renewed and our bones would be refreshed. It has this picture of rejuvenation because we know that the toll of life can lead us, leave us, and lead us into a position where we need this. But whose eyes have the light? You know, one reading of this in verse 30 could say it's actually the the light of the person receiving the news. Their their, uh, eyes light up. But I'm going to suggest to you that in the parallel here, The light of the eyes is the person bringing the news with a sense of lively excitement. So this is another way interpreters have taken this. I think this is the correct reading of the verse. That the light of the eyes is the person showing up with something to tell. And that's paralleled with the good news in line two about what's being shared. So that the light of the eyes, the good news. I mean, have you ever ever been just, you're just sitting there and somebody's bursting into the room. And you can tell by their demeanor and they have something to say. Like the, the very look on their face, it's like, in fact, they have something to say. It seems rather urgent. And uh, by the expression on their face, this is good. You know, they're not freaking out. But they're like really excited to tell you something. That is like someone showing up with the light of their eyes. And, and when we meet someone who recognizes with the light of their eyes and countenance that I've got to go tell this person this. We, we realize that how we are designed as human beings is that good news and joy has a contagious element to it, like a good virus, you know. Um, it's the kind of thing that when we can spread it with our words and demeanor, we want to because it can catch. So the light of the eyes, you show up with something. What's the effect of the person on the other side? Well, when we, when we convey this good news that we know they will want to hear, Something happens in their heart, the heart of the receiver. Just as in line two, good news, whatever it is we bring, refreshes the bones. Well, here, heart and bones, these are, you might say, why are they bringing up organs and the skeletal frame? Why are we talking about hearts and bones? We're just talking about the person. And one way that literary devices can talk about the whole of your person, the whole of your life, is by mentioning a part that represents the whole. That's what we've got going on here. 
Your heart is rejoicing. Your bones are refreshed. It's about saying that you as a person need rejuvenation. That is not a bad thing. That's just an acknowledged human weakness that we have. That things take a toll and I need encouragement. There is not a single person you will ever meet that is exempt from this truth. And therefore, the light of the eyes that we have, if we have something to share, something to rejoice in, something to testify about, you know, it could be something simple, it could be something profoundly spiritual that we can convey, knowing that when I share this, that person's heart is going to be lifted up. And that's what it means to rejoice, the idea of infusing joy in the heart. What a good role we can play. We have a good privilege and responsibility to be encouragers in the lives of other people. Uh, the author of Gentle and Lowly is a man named Dane Ortland, and he's written in other places and spoken in other places about what he calls the ministry of encouragement that every believer is a part of. And what he means is you and I have the, the glad responsibility and privilege to see how we might increase the joy in the hearts of others. How we can be aided by God to be a means and a vessel to bring courage into that heart, to encourage them. And therefore, the light of our eyes or our countenance, you know what this means. Our words, this is just one more way that they're a blessing to others. Proverbs is very much concerned with our tongue, as you know. We've seen countless examples of verses already. Yes, indeed. But here's another image of that same truth. The person's heart is rejoicing by the light of your eyes because when you're showing up, your countenance all lit up with what you've got to, uh, what you're excited about, you speak it. I think this is clarified at the end of the, the, the verse. Good news. So there it is spoken, right? Good news from the light of your eyes that brings rejoicing to the heart or refreshment to the bones of this person. We live in this strange time, don't we, where over these early, or these previous uh, years in the short term, we've had such cycles of, of news and internet uh, stories unending where you have this 24 hour a day barrage of things. You know, decades ago, it was just not always this way. We, we recognize that we have come to a place in human history. It is a slice of larger history, but in this slice of history we live in, we have a barrage of terrible things we hear about all the time. And I want to suggest to you that also has an effect. That the kind of news we are taking in as a barrage of bad news and terrible stories, I am not convinced that human beings are wired to bear that psychologically. You just think about the horrible things in the world that people would know some things about at different points, and maybe even years after the event, depending on when they lived in history. But now, we have such immediate access to such horrible things of such a horribly vast scope, it is overwhelming. And I just want you to realize that's not been the human psychological experience throughout human history. This is a very strange slice of history in which we have that kind of access. And um, I want to I clarify tonight that by bringing that up, I'm wanting to caution us about just letting this fountain of news around all the terrible, th- of terrible things around the world flooding into our hearts every day. I don't know that we're meant to bear that. Now, it's not because we want to keep our head in the sand, okay? That's not the other end. We don't swing the pendulum all the way to the other side. It is to say that we are not God. 
and that as human beings that have vulnerable, uh, uh, vulnerable emotional makeup and, and uh, psychological complexities where we are taking in and processing stuff in our immediate vicinity and worldwide all the time, there is a flood of stuff coming in our way. Perhaps the most spiritual thing you might be able to do sometimes is just disconnect from the internet, from the news, turning off the TV, turning off the radio, if you listen to a radio. Um, you, you, have, you have these kind of outlets, okay, that you can be logging into or connecting yourself to. And I wonder if the sheer barrage of it is affecting us spiritually in ways that are negative. Good news refreshes the bones. Bad news doesn't do that. Again, we don't put our head in the sand and we need to know things to pray for, to call out to the Lord on behalf of. But we, not being God, are not capable, I think, of being unmoved by the flooding in, the intake constantly, day by day, of all that is going on in every single city and country around the world. Because if you tried enough and looked up enough and Googled enough, you could find out all the afflicting and and, uh, grievous things that are going on around the world every day. The light of the eyes rejoices the heart. Good news refreshes the bones. And... um, I just want to operate with a kind of spiritual discretion and discernment where if we can find ourselves easily discouraged and you think, oh my goodness, you know, it's 2023, 2024 is coming up, you know, political news cycles and election year. And you, you just think about the continual and future barrage of, of news and stories that are coming our way. We need to be people anchored deeply to the truth of God's word. And we need to be people who are rooted deeply because uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but, um, you know, the Internet and uh, just news in general isn't always interested in telling you what is, in fact, objectively true as much as they want to up their ratings and keep you watching and especially keeping you fearful. Good news refreshes the bones. So how much more of good news could, uh, could we say then the gospel being such good news would be important for our lives? I, I mean, you, you can think of examples of someone showing up with something exciting to tell, a testimony to give, what the Lord has blessed them in doing. But of good news that refreshes the bones, nothing surpasses the gospel for the Christian. You might even say the gospel is for Christians, you know. Good news refreshes the bones. And good news about the, the Lord Jesus and the cross has an effect on us in corporate worship. I think this is one of the, the most important reasons we meet together so that we might have good news refreshing our bones. So that we might have hearts rejoicing with the light of the eyes of those around us and teaching and preaching the word of God to us. Our hearts and bones need it. You know, man does not live by bread alone. And you don't live by... All the political news cycles alone, our hearts are too vulnerable to not attend to them so spiritually. So one of the reasons we come to corporate worship is so that our heart can rejoice and so that our bones can be refreshed. And the Bible's filled with scenes of good news. My mind thinks about, uh, you know, Joseph in, in Genesis who was lost to his father Jacob for these years. And Joseph's brothers had deceived their father. They knew good and well he had not been killed in that pit or killed by a wild animal. And yet uh, Jacob had gone on believing for those many years that followed um, what had happened until in Genesis 45, he is learning that Joseph is actually alive. And it tells us in Genesis 45 what this news does to him. It tells us as hard as it was for, for Jacob to believe, his spirit was revived. That language is so brief, but it speaks about 
the rejuvenating work that that good news did inside of Jacob, who had no doubt thought about and reflected on how Joseph was missing from the family table year after year after year. And it just was devastating. And to think for all of those years that his son Joseph had been taken by a tragic death. The news and what it did to Jacob's bones is a wonderful scene in Genesis 45. Then, of course, you read about their reunion later on in Genesis when Jacob and Joseph come together. Um, Jacob is so overwhelmed. He's ready at that point to depart in peace and joy versus the grief and sorrow that had marked so many of his nights and years. So I'm just illustrating even from the Bible what we know to be true psychologically for us. We are people who hunger for good news. We need this. And it's not because we're trying to create mirages in the desert. No, no, no. The Lord is at work throughout the world. In fact, in our own lives and the blessings we can recount and the gospel we can preach to ourselves, there is a rejuvenating effect that these things have to us. We must attend to it. Verses 31 and 32 also talk about effective receiving something. This is not about news in general that's being received. Verses 31 and 32 are about receiving something specific from someone. Reproof. That might not be received as bad as good news. In fact, somebody might say, you're giving me correction. That's bad news. But hold on. What kind of reproof is this called? I like the adjective here. In verse 31, the ESV says, the ear that listens to life-giving reproof. Ah, life-giving reproof. Well, if something is life-giving, that's not bad news. In, in other words, here's news that is needed. And it's life-giving in its effect. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. Verses 31 and 32 are telling us with this continued subject of receiving something, receiving news that looks like correction. And here's an ear that listens to it. And in the Old Testament, to listen to something means to heed It means to really listen. It doesn't mean to just physically hear. It's like, did you hear what I'm saying? It's like, yes, I heard what you're saying. You know, eye roll. (laughs) Now, that's not what this is. This is not a, a shrugging off. The ear that listens is the ear that hears with the intent to obey. This means the ear that listens to life giving reproof welcomes and conforms to the reproof. In order that their dwelling might be what's called here among the wise. So this is, this is you know, you get to decide where you're going to live. Not in every physical case. We're talking spiritually here. If you want to dwell among the wise. And maybe you've looked at cities or neighborhoods or, or states or countries over the years where you think, oh, what would it be like to live there or there? Or I would love for this opportunity or what about this? And here the Bible is telling us the most important address where we can dwell. This is it right there. The most important place for you and I to dwell is among the wise. The reason is, earlier in Proverbs, he who walks with the wise becomes wise. But a companion of fools suffers harm. So to dwell among the wise has an effect. This is not like I'm going to dwell among the wise, but I'm going to stay in my house. I'm not going to interact with anybody around me. This is a dwelling of liveliness and fellowship and camaraderie among the wise that has a good effect on your heart. And that means listening to life-giving reproof is what someone wanting to grow in wisdom will do. 
So where do they belong? Well, they most fit then, if they're going to hear life-giving reproof and listen to it, they're going to fit well among the wise. So I wonder where you want to live. Here is this promise that if you will take in godly instruction and correction and realize that the route of wisdom, there's no way around reproof, it will come into our lives. It is inevitable, but it's life-giving. So if I remind myself that this is life-giving, then being a teachable person is not a bad idea. As one commentator put it, a teachable person will become wise because they're not someone who's already convinced they know everything about everything. They're willing to receive correction. They don't have somebody come to them and they think to themselves, I don't know why this person is talking to me. I already know, I, you know, I got this. I know what's going on. I've already thought about it this way. And, you know, they just sort of dismiss the insights and questions and illuminated perspective of others. It takes humility to remember, okay, I'm not God. I have blind spots. I need correction and wisdom, questions and others to come alongside to help me grow wise. Wisdom is a community project. We've got to really believe this. Because if we don't, our pride will keep us stupid. Our self-exalting pride will keep us out of wisdom and on the path of folly. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. A writer puts it this way. The wise are willing to admit mistakes. You think, well, wait a second. Only fools make mistakes, right? No, 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 no. The wise make mistakes and they want to humble themselves before their weakness and their sin. They want to admit what has happened and they want to improve what's going on. They, they want to think about what led to this. Okay, okay, if I said this or this particular action, what, what led up to that? They want to reflect on what led them to do something that was out of character for someone walking in wisdom because they welcomed the reproof and the correction of others, including from the Scripture itself. And this writer says in this way, wise persons might be less likely to make the same mistake twice. I mean, haven't we known folks who, in a particular path of folly, you think, well, they just went through this whole thing. Surely they're not going to do this again, but they do. And they do the same thing, and the same thing, and the same thing. And no matter what consequence seems to happen, even if it begins to escalate legally and financially and relationally, they just keep doing it. And you think, surely they can, like, living foolishly is not a winning strategy. And are they really going to continue to do this? But this writer says wise persons are less likely to make the same mistake twice because what horrifies them is the consequences of folly, the dishonor to God, the damage to relationships. And so the wise would look at something and think, okay, never again will it go this way. If I had it to do over, here's what, would do, uh, here's what I would do differently. They acknowledge the sovereignty of God, but they recognize the decision I made came from somewhere. It's downstream from assumptions I made, things I didn't, some kind of lack of accountability, a refusal to listen to this or that. And they, and they realize that didn't lead me into a wise position. So the ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. But we need verse 32 with this same um, theme, don't we? The effect of receiving or rejecting reproof is enhanced with this, this verse. Whoever ignores instruction 
despises himself. Now, if I didn't fill in the blank there, just whoever ignores instruction, and you could fill in the blank, you might say, well, whoever ignores instruction um, might be disrespectful to their teacher or might be you know, dishonoring to their parent. Or you could just fill in the blank with a number of very legitimate points. Is it unexpected that the Bible would say whoever ignores instruction despises himself? Which means, let's rephrase it here, the best thing you can do for you The best thing you can do for you is to heed life-giving reproof. That's the opposite of hatred of oneself. So to despise is to hate. It's to recoil against. And someone who despises themselves, will we realize a terrible effects emotionally and physically and relationally that that can take when they have a despising attitude toward themselves. Here he says in verse 32, if you ignore instruction, that's a form of self-hatred. If you refuse to listen to life-giving reproof, you're not taking your good into account. So to hate oneself, according to the book of Proverbs, is to do to yourself, or at least toward your future self, what is going to be to a great disadvantage, spiritually, physically. It's to fail to do what will be best for your soul. Okay, so... Verse 32, whoever ignores instruction despises himself. We could say, then therefore, if someone who's heeding instruction, someone who's welcoming life-giving reproof, that is a sign that they care about their deepest good. They actually care about the state of their soul. One of the, the pleas that you make in pastoral ministry when, we're, when you're sitting with folks and whose life is self-destructing. Not not because someone outside has made decisions that are affecting them so poorly, but because they themselves are continuing to make decisions. You want to plead with them to see how they are not even taking their own good into account. Now, that might not be the simple, reduced situation. There could be complicating factors. You want to acknowledge that for sure. It's just to say that foolishness manifests in self-hatred. Not because the person goes around saying, I hate myself, I hate myself. But because they make decisions that's a hatred of one's own soul. It's the opposite of what's good. One writer puts it this way. Those who reject discipline or instruction disdain their lives because they run the risk of getting into trouble over and over and over again. Because they seem to be unaware of their mistakes. There's a refusal To see reality for what it is. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself. Because I think what Solomon would want to plead with us is, do what would be loving to yourself. Now I know we have commandments in the scriptures, you know, loving your neighbor as yourself, loving your enemies. Here is an example where we could glean language of hatred of oneself and implying love for oneself. And to show love for yourself will include Listening to life-giving rebuke and reproof. Welcoming correction. But if you refuse life-giving correction from the wise, from the scriptures, then you are not taking your heart into account. You're simply recoiling at something you just don't want to listen to. Sometimes it boils down to simply that, right? I just don't, I don't want to, I don't, not now, not from you, not about this. Like you just, you just don't want it. You don't want to hear it. But what if, we, what if we reminded ourselves, okay, the route to wisdom is not around reproof, but through it. Like I'm going to receive life-giving correction, which means on the other side of this, I will be better as a result of it. So let me submit to it. 
Let me welcome it. He who listens to reproof gains intelligence. And that doesn't mean the intelligence in a non-biblical sense about uh, this matter or this realm of interest or or this uh, uh, aspect of study or research. Intelligence here is paired with instruction in the first of the verse, isn't it? So that intelligence or insight and understanding in Proverbs is all about spiritual knowledge and discernment for living. So he who listens to reprove increases in how to live well. That means I need other people in order to live well. I need to be surrounded by the wise so that when correction comes and rebuke comes, I will be enlivened by it and helped by it rather than saying, well, I don't really want to live in the neighborhood of the wise. I'll dwell somewhere else. No, the ear that will hear life-giving reproof will find a home among the wise and that's where you want to dwell. The last verse, verse 33, seems to highlight... What's behind a heart so willing to speak encouragement and receive reproof? It's a heart that in a vertical sense, okay, so talk about horizontal exchanges of words, but in a vertical sense, it's a certain posture toward the Lord. In the opening phrase, the fear of the Lord is a common one in the book of Proverbs. In fact, the fear of the Lord phrase occurs 14 times in the whole book. And I point this out because sometimes a particular number is interesting with an arrangement of phrases and, and sections. And here you have a phrase occurring 14 times, which is twice the number seven. The number seven is a very interesting organizing number in principle in much of uh, Old and New Testament texts that can pile up through observation. The fear of the Lord is a very important phrase, and it occurs a particular time, a number of times that multiply from seven. The fear of the Lord, I've said to you in our opening of Proverbs 1 several years ago, is to think of the fear of the Lord in terms of reverence and love for God. That to honor the Lord and to submit all of one's life to God out of reverence for Him is a way of living out a love for God in all of life. So I've tried to define the fear of the Lord this way to give us some, some language to, to pin it on. The fear of the Lord is about living out a love for God. So it's, it's outward. It's not just I meant well, the thought that counts. It's living out. It's obedience. It's submission. It's pursuit. It's seeking. It's repenting. It's trusting. The fear of the Lord is living out a love for God. That's what drives this. But it's not just for part of life where I'm sectioning off this aspect of my life or this aspect of my life. It's all of life lived out out of love for God, the fear of the Lord. And what it says here is something that can be tricky in the first line. It's interpreted different ways. The ESV says the fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom. What does that mean, though? Does is just mean an equal sign? So the the difficulty here is there's no verb in the original Hebrew. And so sometimes what can be done is in the context, you can look at other verbs in such a a, a parallelism and impart that. So it could be something like fear of the Lord leads to instruction and wisdom, just like humility leads to honor. Because humility comes before honor, it's here in verse 33. So is it like the fear of the Lord receives instruction and wisdom, leads to, is, it's a difficulty. But as one writer pointed out, could be a translation issue. Rather than just saying the fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom, it could be translated, the fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom. And you say, what's what's the difference there? In and of. Here's the difference. 
To be instructed in wisdom is certainly something we would want. Wisdom is the, the thing that I want to learn in. Wisdom in the book of Proverbs has also been personified, though. Do you remember Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly from Proverbs 1 to 9? They also have things to say. Lady Folly exhorts her people to follow the allure of her deceptive plans and snares, and then destruction follows. And Lady Wisdom pleads for people to hear her voice in the streets so that they might know life and rejuvenation and blessing. So you can translate this, the fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom. Which would, I think, make sense in the larger scheme of the book, that what would wisdom instruct us in? What would be the instruction of wisdom to the people around her listening in the streets? Fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom. That's what it boils down to. So that's my own leaning on how to understand this first line. I do grant that there are some difficulties in it and how to possibly interpret it. But I'm going I'm to lean on this idea that wisdom's instruction is the fear of the Lord. And that's what leads to hearts being rejoicing, rejoicing, what leads to bones being refreshed. It's what leads to ears hearing life-giving reproof. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 10.9. So what is wisdom instruction? What is the instruction of wisdom to us? The fear of the Lord. That's the drumbeat over and over and over again in this book. And that means we are brought low before God with our need to grow. Humility comes before honor. Which means there is no fear of the Lord coupled with pride. Because to honor the Lord and to reverence the Lord and to live out a love for God in all of life is to depend on the Lord and to cast oneself upon his mercy and to recognize the need for the word of God to bring truth into our souls. In other words, it drives us to a posture of humility before God and then God lifts us up. He honors us in ways that is deemed fitting providentially. Humility comes before honor. In other words, pride is not a winning strategy, but rather coming before God knowing that the state of our soul matters and that we need to think of our good, the good of our souls most of all. Proverbs 18 verse 12 says, Before destruction a man's heart is haughty. So just as a haughty heart is before destruction, humility comes before honor. In other words, think about what you want the effect to be, destruction or honor, and then ask yourself, well, what comes before that? Because whatever comes before that, that I am responsible to pursue either a humble posture of heart before God or just live in my self-exalting way, that's going to lead to one thing or the other. Proverbs 18.12 says, Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty. When we look at the end of Proverbs 15, this is not telling us things that haven't in some way already been mentioned thematically in Proverbs these Proverbs have ways of restating some of the same truths and themes that we need to hear just from a different angle. It's like holding up the same diamond and just looking at it a little bit differently in the light. I think that's what the re repetition, the recurring of these themes, um, one of the purposes for that is in our, our uh, hearing and reading of the words. In verses 30 through 33, we are internalizing and what we need to be welcoming is correction, and that there's no way around that, and that life-giving correction will be good for our lives, we will be the better for it. What's going to drive that? Well, the book of Proverbs is not trying to be a mere self-help book. That's not what this is. Let me give you just some general tips for improving your life. 
and you know, helping your relationships. There are a lot of books that do that and that you know, sell millions of copies. Proverbs is not trying to compete with those. Proverbs is instruction for living that's rooted in the fear of the Lord. That's why verses 30 through 32 are followed by one more verse. Because we think about news that enlivens the heart and bones, hearing correction, dwelling among the wise, not despising oneself, but instead showing love and care for one's soul. What drives that? That's why we need verse 33. We must be reminded that our posture toward God affects everything else. It affects everything else. So let us stay low before the Lord. Prayerful and in his word. That we would pray like David in Psalm 25. Lord, make me to know your ways. Lead me and teach me your truth. Show me, Lord, from your word how to walk in paths of righteousness. You, the faithful shepherd, guiding me, O Lord. Proverbs 15 and Psalm 25 dovetail nicely with each other. So that as we come low before the Lord, our humble hearts would come with a proper fear and reverence of God. Knowing that starting there is the starting point for all spiritual growth anyway. Let's pray.